This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julie Magana. Episode 10. Excuse me, your bias is showing. Welcome back to EM Pulse. Are you guys ready to take on another challenging topic? Yes. All right. So today we're going to talk about racism and implicit bias in emergency healthcare. Okay, first let's define implicit bias. That is the attitude that lies in our subconscious, but that attitude can influence our behavior. It's the attitudes about race, gender, religion, so on and so forth. It's automatic and it's without personal control. As opposed to explicit bias, which are the attitudes and beliefs that we have on a conscious level. Why is this such a challenging topic? Sarah, why is it so hard for us to talk about that? I think we don't want to admit that racism is still a big problem in our society. Mm -hmm. We don't want to say the wrong thing or offend anybody. And frankly, we don't want to show our own biases or we don't really want to believe that we have them. Yeah, I totally get it. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot. And, you know, I this is two white girls that are talking about this topic. And like a part of me feels like I don't have the right to talk about it. But then another part of me feels like, yeah, we need to be the ones that are talking about it. We can easily be a part of the problem or we can be a part of the solution. I also think that you know, I would love to think that we live in a post-race society, you know, like, uh, or that we elected an African-American president. And so now all issues with racism have forever <laughs> and ever, amen, ended, you know, but that's not real. I also kind of grew up not really thinking about this as a topic, probably because I am a white privileged person. And so it wasn't something that I had to think about every day uh, until I met my husband, Orlando. And um, I remember being in college and we would drive through the city and he would be really paranoid about driving the speed limit. And he's like, oh, if I go one mile over the speed limit, I'm going to get pulled over. I'm like, that's ridiculous. And he's like, no, 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 I will be the one to be pulled over and kind of explained that thought process. And I, I really, for years and years, thought that he was paranoid about it. So we've been together for 19 years now, and um, I've watched little micro examples of this. And and now that I have, as I like to call them, tan kiddos, it's a lot more of a reality for me. It's something that I have to think about. Okay, Sarah, have you actually seen implicit bias or explicit bias racism in healthcare or in the emergency department specifically? Yeah, I'll tell you my story, and it's not about racism specifically, but it is about bias. So I was an intern, and it was the end of a busy shift. I was exhausted. My attending was exhausted. And my last patient was a 40-something-year-old guy. He had a history of opioid abuse and psychiatric disease, and he was homeless. And he was coming in with intractable nausea, vomiting, and presumed opioid withdrawal. Oh, I can smell it now. <laughs> <laughs> and before our, uh, before I even saw him, our social worker came to me and said, I know this guy. He's a loser. He's a frequent flyer. Just give him whatever he wants and get him out of the ED. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll go see him. And so I went to see him, and I really couldn't get much out of him. He was just vomiting. He wasn't 
a particularly pleasant person. I'm sure he wasn't feeling particularly well at the time. Yeah. So I came out and I, you know, being the intern, had a little bit more time. So I actually called the psych hospital that he had recently been discharged from and spoke with the treating psychiatrist who said, oh, man, I know this guy. He's horrible. He's a pain in the butt. I, you know, I would never say this, but just give him some Dilaudid and get him out of your ER. So you know, with all this, I kind of just figured, ah, oh, this is a drug seeker. I took what they were saying. I added my own bias to it. And, um, you know, we gave this guy a couple of doses of Dilaudid, a couple of doses of Zofran. Couldn't really get his vomiting controlled, so we kind of threw up our hands and admitted him to the OBS unit for not tolerating POs. And six hours later, somebody came and did an EKG, and he had a massive inferior STEMI. Oh, God. So my bias, because of my bias and because of the bias of these other providers, I missed this life-threatening diagnosis. You know, the other thing is, how many times have we not recognized our bias or not even realized that we missed something big? You know, I mean, that was a really big thing, so you were bound to find out about it sooner than later. But those small things can pass by because of our biases. We miss them, and um, we may never have the chance to learn from them. I worry about that all the time with my child abuse evaluations in particular and making sure that because I look at that family objectively and look at the findings objectively and the risk factors objectively, and I try really hard not to let my own preconceptions get in the way because, man, that's a high-stakes game also. You know, I feel like, Sarah, we don't put into our med school essay, I want to be a doctor to take care of rich white patients, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like most of us that went into emergency medicine, we appreciate that we have to worry less about insurance status. We are the safety net. We can treat anyone who walks through the door. You know, Sarah, Rupa Maria is an associate professor of medicine at UCSF, and she shared a pretty similar story with other providers, and that story was then shared on social media. I saw it on Facebook and on Twitter, and I found it really interesting that Dr. Maria was able to identify her own bias and then advocate for her patient. Listen to the story and see what you think. But I had a, a black woman come in with back pain who every time she coughed, um, she would get chest pain, and she was just there with back pain. She said, oh, my chest, my chest. And she had a very histrionic personality. And so all the providers were inclined to just be like, oh, okay, let's just give her some cough medicine, give her some cough medicine. So one day I was like, let me put an EKG on you, because I know, I think the New England Journal study just came out that black women get, have the worst health outcomes with heart attacks because they're not listened to. So I'm like, okay, let me, let me just try this. So I put an EKG on her, and every time she coughed, she had... ST elevation. She was having a heart attack. I said, oh my, oh my God. So I called the cardiologist and I said, can you please cap this lady? Because I, I think she has a bridge artery going through her, you know, myocardium so that when her interthoracic pressure is increased, it's collapsing the artery and she's having cardiac issues. And he said, well, send her to my outpatient clinic. I said, this woman will never show up to your outpatient clinic. I know this woman, I've known her for five years. She will never show up. She's here in the hospital. She's going to be here for a couple of days with back pain. Let's just do a cap. And, and um, he refused to do the cap. And so finally I said, um, you know, I don't want this woman to become a statistic that black women get worse medical care um, around heart attacks than everybody else because the medical institution doesn't listen to them. And he said, are you calling me a racist? And I said, well, I... <laughs> 
well, I think our system is racist, and we're all participating. We're all participants in the system, and I'm trying to check myself. And I had and I had to check myself and actually go. She's saying chest pain. Get an EKG. Like that's what you're trained to do. Why wasn't I doing it, right? And so I think a part of it is just um, starting to unlearn our own implicit biases from that we've been raised with in this society, and challenge yourself with each patient encounter. Now I just challenge myself when I'm looking at black, indigenous, Latino person. I challenge myself. Okay, what am I not seeing? What am I not asking? Because I'm a part of the system. And, and, and through that own self-inquiry and examination, I also now start you know, talking with my colleagues. Look what I missed. To talk about this more, we caught up with Dr. Tiffany Johnson. She is faculty pediatric emergency medicine at CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She's also a part of the policy lab at CHOP and is a senior fellow in the Center for Injury Research and Prevention. We cornered her in a closet in the middle of Sarah's shift (laughs) to record this interview. Yeah, and she started by defining implicit and explicit bias as we did at the beginning of the episode. And I started thinking, is implicit bias just a euphemism for prejudice? And I asked her, why don't we just call it racism? Implicit bias is a part of kind of a broader body of um, recognizing racism that exists in America and racism that exists in healthcare. And I think the reason why I was hesitant to use it is because when you say racism, it immediately puts people off. It immediately makes people put up their walls and they become defensive. And so I didn't like to use that term Mm. because I didn't want people to just be completely closed to what my research was focused on. So I think sometimes when you frame it as, well, we're talking about implicit bias and everyone has bias, it's a little bit more digestible. But I think in our current climate that we're living in, in America, recognizing all of the explicit bias and racism that's taken place It's a disservice, I think, to the work that I do if we don't acknowledge the broader system of racism that exists. If implicit bias is subconscious, Sarah, like how do we even know that it exists? How do we know that it's a problem? Everyone has some type of bias. I used to say if you live in America, but now it's like if you like wake up and breathe air and live on planet Earth, you have some type (laughs) of bias. Um, That bias may be related to race and ethnicity, um, but some people don't have racial bias. So other people may have bias related to social economic status or based on someone's sexual orientation. But the reality is that we all have bias. So one way that we know that it exists is because there are validated instruments for measuring unconscious bias, including the implicit association test. IATs are validated tests that measure attitudes and beliefs that people may be unwilling or unable to report. For example, you may believe that women and men should be equally associated with science, but your automatic associations show that you, like many others, associate men with science more than you associate women with science. And these tests are being now integrated into a lot of medical schools and residencies. They help the learner identify their own biases. So the way the um, IAT works is you are given traditionally a set of um, pictures for different groups and a set of words. So for the race IAT, they have pictures of black people, pictures of white people, words that represent good, words that represent bad. And you have to do randomized blocks of trials where you do fast associations. So for one block, they'll have um, black or good 
on one side, white or bad on one side. So when the black face comes up, you press the key to link it with black or good. When the white face comes up, you push the key to link it with white or bad. When pain comes up, you press the key to link it with white or bad. When pleasure comes up, you link it with black or good. And you go through these associations very fast. They change kind of the direction of the associations. And what they found is that if you um, have more difficulty, so it takes you longer or you make more errors when you're doing the counter stereotypical association of black or good, white or bad, but it's easier for you when you're doing that stereotypical association of white or good, black or bad, Mm -hmm. then you have an implicit for white anti-black bias. I would encourage you to log on the project implicit so that you can explore what some of your own unconscious biases are. So we took Tiffany's advice. And I was surprised because it turns out I am biased against working women. But fortunately, Tiffany tells us this is not uncommon. You can actually be a minority and still have unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. So once you bring those attitudes from your unconsciousness and bring them into your consciousness, you're aware about it. And how can you use that to help you when you're interacting with people and when you're making decisions? So when I was a resident physician, I was working in the NICU and I had one particular family every day. The mom and dad would come in and I would um, talk to mom, give her updates, ask her if she had questions. And this happened every day for actually a couple of weeks. And finally, one day the dad said to me, do you have something against men? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, like, no wonder I'm single. No, I, I love you. I love you, man. I don't, like, why, why would you ask me that question? And he said, because every day I come here with my wife and you barely even make eye contact with me. You never ask me if I have any questions. And it was something that I did so automatically that I wasn't even aware of it. And it was something that I had kind of been conditioned to do because traditionally when I interact with parents, The father has no idea what's going on and the mother does, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't something that I was consciously aware that I was doing. It was something that was automatic. And he pointed it out to me and I was incredibly embarrassed. Mm -hmm. But because he made me aware of it, now I can use that as a tool when I'm interacting with families. So now that bias, I'm aware of it. And actually the bias still hasn't gone away. So when I'm working in the emergency department, I still think that most dads have no idea what's going on with their kid. But because that bias was pointed out to me, when I have two parents in the room, I'm more conscious about it. And I stop and I pause and I look at dad and I say, what questions do you have? Mm. And I try to make sure that when I'm explaining things that I look back and forth between both parents. And if no one pointed it out to me, I would still have some um, uneasiness in the interactions that I was having with my families that I wasn't aware of. And so I think that the IAT is that tool where you can do it kind of in the privacy of your own home. So you're not embarrassed when someone's pointing Mm -hmm. it out to you, but you can become a little bit more aware about these unconscious attitudes and stop and pause and reflect and think, hmm, I have this bias that I wasn't aware of. How might this potentially be impacting me at work? And how can I stop and pause in my interactions with my families and my patients? Yeah. You know, Julia, I totally hear what Tiffany's saying, and I wonder if I've done the same thing. You know, I hear you, except for I feel like it's totally different with kids. I walk into the room and I fall in love with every one of my screaming little patients, you know? Maybe I'm biased against the parents, but it's got to be different towards the kids, right? I actually thought the same thing because, you know, when you work in the emergency department, 
it's especially like the peas resins. They're like, so I have this little peanut in room four and this little cutie patootie. And, you know, like we use all of those <laughs> words. So there's actually a child race IAT. And then it was developed to give to children to determine when children's implicit bias develops. And so when I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, I want to give this to the residents to see what their bias is towards these children compared to bias with adults. So I gave it to residents who are working in a pediatric emergency department and in that particular ED they had lots of trainers so they had both general emergency medicine residents pediatric residents as well as other specialties like family medicine anesthesia psychology um, and we gave them a child race IIT with pictures of these super cute black kids with like cornrows and afro puffs and these super cute white kids with like pigtails um, and we gave them an adult race IIT to have pictures of like kind of scary adult white and black people and I thought that everyone's going to do really good on the child race IIT but have lots of bias on the adult race IIT and so I called this my everybody loves brown babies hypothesis <laughs> and um but I was wrong and so what we found was that um most residents and this was a study of 91 um residents had implicit bias towards both adults and children. So 85% had a pro-white bias um, towards adults and 91% of our participants had pro-white um, anti-black bias against children. Um, and when we looked at the actual mean IAT scores, there was no statistically significant difference between the adult race IAT and the black race IAT. And this was kind of troubling to me thinking that yeah. when you have like the most innocent and the most vulnerable population who walks in the doors of the healthcare system, that um, healthcare providers have just as much bias towards those children as they do towards adults. Um, and I even, uh, I'll admit that I have personal biases that I think pediatricians are like more warm and fuzzy than the, than general EM residents. And so I thought the pediatric residents were going to do better and they didn't. Okay. So we have these biases. We have them against kids. We have them against adults. But how is this affecting the way we treat our patients? There is a, a very robust body of literature that shows that our unconscious biases impact our verbal and nonverbal communication in our behaviors. So even if you self-report, think that, that like that kid is super cute, but you have unconscious attitudes, it impacts how you're interacting with that child. And then research also, most of this has been in adult populations, but people perceive that. So um, when you have um, challenges in your verbal and nonverbal communication based on your unconscious biases, even though you may be completely unaware of it, the patients actually perceive it. Mm. Um, and then that may impact how the patients feel about the treatment decisions that you're making, whether or not they're going to comply with the treatments um, that you that you um, recommend for them. Um, so even though we may not be aware of it, the patients are kind of picking up on these verbal and nonverbal cues that we're giving. So it can manifest with kids in subtle examples like um, whether when you have a child in the room, do you actually talk to the child and interact with that child and ask them questions? And there's research in primary care that shows that um, providers are more likely to engage with white children and ask them questions and to make them a part of their medical decision making and less likely to interact with black children based on kind of unconscious attitudes about their intelligence um, in, the, in the visit. 
There have definitely been several studies that show we do treat minorities a little bit differently as far as pain management, going to the cath lab, et cetera, et cetera. But two interesting studies found a slightly different perspective to that difference in management. One was in African-American patients that were very young in the pediatric emergency department presenting with chest pain, they are less likely to get discretionary or what's actually inappropriate testing and subsequently had a shorter emergency department stay. That's super interesting to me. The second study was looking at how race affected CT scans in children with traumatic brain injury. The PCARN group found that high-risk patients, it didn't matter. We just went ahead and got the head CT scan. We did what was right. But when we had a little bit of choice in the moderate or low-risk patients, white children were more likely to get a CT scan. Parent anxiety or requests were cited most commonly as the reason. So is it that the rich white patients and their families know what to ask for? They're the ones that are insisting upon these tests or treatments? Or is it that we're more likely to acquiesce to their requests? I don't know, Sarah. Maybe our non-white patients, our minority patients, are asking, and we're just not hearing them. Clearly, this is an issue, and it affects how we care for our patients. But if these biases are unconscious, can we even do anything about them? So I actually did a study looking at cognitive load and how it impacts you in the emergency department. One of the motivators was I recognize that when I come in for a shift, I'm like freshly caffeinated, I've eaten, <laughs> I'm ready to face the world. And so, for example, like when a consultant um, who I'm trying to meet a patient for they want like a gazillion tests done that I think are unnecessarily, I'm going to like push back, right? And I'm going to try to do what's going to be best for the patient. But at the end of my shift, I'm just like so beat down and worn out that I'm like, whatever you need to get done to get this patient admitted. And so I recognize that we have this cognitive load that impacts us in the ED. So the more decisions that you make, the more cognitive load that you face, and then your mind starts to rely on heuristics, right? And we need heuristics in order to function in the emergency department, right? Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, we would not be able to efficiently operate in our shifts. But heuristics can include bias and stereotyping. So I wanted to test a hypothesis about how your biases come out more at the end of the shift after you've kind of faced more cognitive load. So um, I did a study where we did an implicit association test before and after an ED shift. And we found that in resident physicians, if they took care of more patients during a shift or if they worked when the shift was more crowded, they actually had more bias at the end of their shift compared to the beginning of their shift. Um, so I think when you think about um, how do we reduce the impact that our bias has on patients patient care, how do we impact our systems to help make it um, better for us to be able to make better decisions? So some of the things um, I, I tell all the residents um, when they're working with me, everybody has to eat, drink, and pee before your shift is mm -hmm. over, right? Because yeah. we recognize that like when you're hungry and hangry, um, that's something that actually impacts your cognitive load and impacts your ability to make good decisions. So how do you take good care of yourself as a person so that you can take the best care of your patient? Um, and then related to length of shifts, um, unfortunately, like a lot of us don't have an impact on that, right? But if I could make decisions in healthcare systems, I would advocate for eight-hour shifts versus 12-hour shifts, um, just recognizing kind of how that decision fatigue comes into play towards the end of your shift and how that might that manifest with bias in terms of 
who you are giving analgesics to when patients are coming into pain. How might it um, make decisions about who's being admitted to the hospital versus being discharged? Um, which patients um, who come in with chest pain that you decide to get a D-dimer and an X-ray and do a workup for and who you think uh, that they, sh they shouldn't be in my emergency department and I'm not going to work them up and how that impacts your decision. So um, I would um, advocate for, for shorter shifts. I would actually advocate for us being able to have breaks to eat on our shift. Right. So nurses, when they work through their shifts, they actually have, you know, requirements for them to be able to stop, pause, breathe, eat, drink and pee. But frequently physicians, we don't have those opportunities. Um, so how can we better structure our environment so that we're better positioned um, to, to make better decisions for our patients? Cognitive load, self-care, these are clearly essential. Oh, wait. In fact, I think we just did a podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> but we asked Tiffany about other potential strategies to address implicit bias on both personal and institutional levels. These are conversations that we need to have. So I think, first of all, just kind of talking about issues around race that are taking place in this country is particularly important. I think it's also important for people who are involved in quality improvement and research um, that we begin to measure these things in a rigorous manner so that we can kind of document what the problems are and work on developing evidence-based solutions. In terms of our unconscious attitudes specifically, there is work outside of the healthcare setting that has been shown to be effective at reducing unconscious bias. So some examples are actually positive imaging priming. That's one of my favorites because I'm a black woman with an afro, and so I like to think that when people interact with me, um, if you have a positive experience, then it helps to kind of undo some of those negative attitudes that you may have about African Americans. So how can you prime yourself by, instead of thinking about all of the negative images that you see about African Americans or Latinos when you're watching the news, when you're reading your Twitter feeds, Prime yourself with positive images of Black and Latinos to help undo some of those unconscious associations. Another strategy is perspective taking. A lot of times when you're, you know, on your shift and it's four o'clock in the morning and, you know, a patient is coming in and it may be their, you know, third or fourth visit and like you're really frustrated about why this patient is in your emergency department. Instead of looking at it from your perspective and your frustration, try to look at things from the perspective of that patient who's in the emergency department and try to think about what factors in their life is resulting in them requiring, you know, these repeat emergency visits. And so kind of taking on a perspective of your patients is another example of a strategy that can help to reduce your unconscious attitudes. Another um, strategy is stereotype replacement. So recognizing, again, that like when we watch television, when we're reading our Twitter feeds, when we're reading the newspaper, we see a lot of stereotypical images about minority um, populations. And that can then impact um, how we feel about our patients when we come into the emergency department. Or the reality is, depending on what your setting is, you may actually see a lot of those stereotypes come into play in your interactions with patients. And then that makes you have certain assumptions about every single patient that you're going to interact with subsequently. So taking a minute to try to recognize what stereotypes are coming up and try to name those stereotypes and replace those stereotypes so that every time you walk in a room, it's not like, 
those people who do this and these people who are drug seekers, but looking at a person as an individual instead of making kind of group-based associations um, based on stereotypes. Another strategy is increasing opportunity for cross-cultural contact. So there's a book, I can't remember the exact title, but it's something like, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Next to Each Other at the Lunch Table? And so a lot of times when, um, even when I do these talks at my institution for like responsible conduct of research, it's like all of the pulmonary fellows are sitting together, Mm -hmm. right? And all the emergency medicine residents are sitting together and all the GI people are sitting together. And I think we just like naturally like homophily, like we just naturally want to be around people who look like us, who think like us, who act like us. It makes us feel more comfortable. Um, but when you are only around people who look like you and act like you and think like you, then your your thoughts about the other groups are sometimes based on stereotypes and what you see. So how do you increase your opportunity to interact with people who come from different backgrounds than you, who come from different races, different cultures, so that you can um, be able to, again, kind of replace some of those stereotypes when you're interacting with patients. Did I talk about mindfulness? No. So that's another strategy um, that I think um, is it's been shown in um, multiple different um, studies in the literature for reducing different biases based on like age, gender and race. So when you think about like that IET, when you're doing that fast thinking, and as we talked about kind of how our bias manifests with cognitive load in the emergency department, we're doing all of this quick thinking. So mindfulness practices is a tool to help you really kind of slow that mind down. So instead of making those quick, fast associations, you can stop and think about each individual patient instead of kind of putting them in those groups. So mindfulness practice is another strategy that is potentially helpful. So you guys should totally like a mindfulness podcast. Sarah. Sarah. Oh, right. Mindfulness on a personal level. (laughs) Okay, but what can we do at a systems level? Most cultural competency trainings are check boxes Mm -hmm. um, that aren't usually super duper effective. So recognizing that cultural competency isn't like just a check box that go along with like, how do you use the fire extinguisher and like, how do you deal with a chemical spill? But um, how do you really help people to kind of get get their hands dirty and get in deep with these issues for, for how to address them? And I would add in that hiring and creating an environment where underrepresented minorities see physicians and nurses who look like them or share similar backgrounds can bring a cross-cultural perspective to patient care. I was just at a training in implicit bias to help those who are hiring new physicians to become aware of their own biases. It was really enlightening to me, and clearly our system has identified this as a priority, and they are pushing us to make purposeful hiring decisions. I think issues like this need to be addressed from the top down. I think that now also we're seeing a lot of like the next generation is like super social justice oriented, right? So we're starting to see a lot of things happening at like the medical school level and at the resident and training level about like how do we deal with unconscious bias and disparities and culturally competent care. If you're just doing it from the bottom up, 
it's going to be a problem because then those residents and medical students are interacting with senior faculty members mm-hmm. who may have unconscious bias or conscious bias that's manifesting itself. And so I think there's still definitely a need to go from the top down. And how do we change the culture at like the highest levels of leadership to address some of these issues as well? Pulse check. We really enjoyed our time with Tiffany, and she made some excellent points. We all have biases that lie in our subconscious, and this can impact our clinical decision making. It's a matter of identifying them, so get online and take an IAT. Become aware of your biases so that you can interrupt them. Then have that conversation with yourself or if you're really brave with your colleagues. We know we are more biased when we're tired at the end of a shift, so take care of yourself. Also, be mindful and try positive priming, seeing minorities in positive views. Maybe play this podcast with Tiffany on your way to your next shift. And personal change comes from you, but that's not enough. The system has to change, and that starts from the top down. There is so much more to say on this topic, so let's continue the conversation on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as at Impulse Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and now we're on Spotify. And please rate us. It helps others discover us. And I just finished my slides for the Emergency Medicine Hot Topics 2018. It is going to be in Maui, and it is going to be awesome, November 6th through 10th, 2018. Thanks to our department. I love that we are trying to be better together. And thank you to OM Audio Productions. Thanks for working with our pretty stinky ED recording and always driving the speed limit. (laughs) And thank you to our listeners. See See you next next time. time.